Good morning, good morning, everyone. Great to see you this morning on this beautiful day. Boy, did we have a, a great Easter service last Sunday, huh? Yeah, one, were you here? It was just so wonderful. Thank you, worship team. It was incredible. Happy day. It was just a wonderful service. I'm already looking forward to next Easter service. It's <laughs> a year away. <laughs> but it was wonderful. Um, so last Sunday, I talked about how the purpose and the meaning of the coming of Jesus in his own words was, I have come, his purpose in coming, so that we may have life in all its fullness. Remember that? That's a great verse. I love that verse. Because um, it's good news. More life. Who wants more life, right? More joy, more peace, more connection, more delight. Love that. That's great. But it's also, I think, a bit surprising to most of us because I think the usual perception of churches, uh, and churches represent Jesus, right? The usual perception of the main purpose of church is not necessarily life in all its fullness, don't you think? It's perceived to be a place where you come and you hear about what's right, what's wrong. You present your Sunday best. Do you know that phrase? You got to bring your best to God. It's a place to be serious about life, about good, about evil, our behavior, right? That's usually the main purpose. So it's a bit surprising, it's unexpected that Jesus says that the main purpose of Jesus is life in all its fullness. Indeed, he surprised a lot of people in his time. Most religious people were very taken aback by him because Jesus was not your usual religious leader type behavior. He was always in a party, <laughs> you know? If you are to believe the Bible, most of Jesus' teaching takes place in the context of a party. <laughs> it was so much so that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. It's what the Bible says, that he was known for being a drunkard and a glutton. <laughs> that's not what you usually hear at church, right? That's right in the Bible, that that was his reputation. That's surprising, isn't it? That's who we are following. Life of the party, you know, kind of guy. So, we need to drop our prejudiced assumptions. We need to look at Jesus and the Bible afresh with no assumptions, just take it straight. Who was Jesus? What did he teach? What was he about? So we are starting a new sermon series called Unexpected Jesus. Isn't that interesting? 
I, I'm excited for this series. I think it's going to be very interesting. And today, we're going to talk about life with less fear, living with less fear. You guys, isn't that good, right? You want to live with less fear, right? Just imagine, just less fear. Just take a breath, you know? Life feels a lot better with less fear because fear gets in the way of joy, right? Fear gets in the way of life in all its fullness. So we need to work against fear as Christians who are trying to follow Jesus who is trying to give us life in all its fullness, right? So that's what today is about. We're going to look at a parable from Jesus today that has surprising lessons about fear and faith and life from the book of Luke. Jesus said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas, one mina each. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. So we have a situation here that was well known at the time. A prince a noble person who wants to be king, had to get approval from Rome, the Roman Empire. So they had to travel, get approved, come back, and become king. So Jesus is framing his teaching in a well-known political situation. And so he gives one mina, this, this master gives one mina each to his servants, right? One mina it's worth about $10,000. About $10,000, okay? Imagine if you were one of his servants and you just got $10,000. And what is that about? What does that mina represent? The usual understanding is whatever God's gifts we have, our talents, our brains, our life, that might be the best representation because everybody gets one and everybody has a life, right? And so the main question of the parable seems to be, what are you going to do with your life? God's given you your life and there's going to be a limited time. And nobody here thinks they're going to live forever, right? You have a limited time. Everybody does. Master's coming back. Master represents God, right? There is going to be a time of looking back and seeing how you lived your life. What are you going to do with it, right? That seems to be the main question of this teaching. And the usual answer from pastors like me is exhortation to do good with your life. Don't waste it. Don't just spend it pursuing selfish pleasures. Don't sin. Don't go wild. Serve God. Be a righteous servant of God, right? That's the usual preaching. I'm not going there today, though. <laughs> because if we take a closer look, surprising and unexpected lessons emerge. The story continues. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. That seems to be about Jesus' 
and like how people of faith didn't want him, but Jesus resurrects anyway. Then he sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Ten from one. That's pretty good return, don't you think? A thousand percent return. Now, if someone said, said to you, I can give you a thousand percent return, just give me your money, what would you say to that person? <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> You know it's a scam, right? It's not going to work. You're not going to get a thousand, I mean, financial lesson number one, there is no free lunch. You know, great return comes with great risk. You know, if you're going for the home run returns, you are going to likely lose it all. If you want to have a safe investment, you put it in a bank, what do you get if you put it in a bank these days? Pretty much nothing. You, you get 0.1%, not even 1%, right? You can't even notice. That's what you get with a safe investment. You want to get a 1,000% return, you're talking about going to Vegas and gambling your money on... Yeah, you know, on very, very, very long shots, that's just not going to happen, right? 10 to 1 odds, that's just, you're just going to lose. I was playing lottery, right? And it was the same back then, maybe even worse. I mean, for someone to make this kind of money back then, you know, merchants would buy like wool and spice or whatever, they would travel a long way, go somewhere else, and, and hope to sell it for a lot more money, right? And along the way, you could get wiped out at any time. There are pirates, there are bandits, there are storms, there are corrupt officials, right? It was a brutal time back then. More likely than not, you're going to lose it all. And that's the, really the only way you can multiply your money back then. So... Think about this for a moment. Why would this servant do such a thing and take such a risk? Because what's in it for him? If he makes a lot of money, that's not his money. He's going to have to give it all to the master. It's master's money. And if he loses it, back then, in that brutal time, you probably get severely punished. You get tortured, imprisoned, maybe like get killed. Very common back then. So what's in it for the servant to play like this? That's a weird servant. How can this servant be so fearless as to gamble so recklessly? That's really the main mystery question the pivot of this parable as you will see as we keep reading well done my good servant his master replied because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter take charge of 10 cities 
The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. So these servants get a, a city for $10,000. Think about that for a moment. What, what would you get for $10,000 in this city? Maybe you get a closet. Not even a closet, probably, in this city for $10,000. They get the whole city. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy reward for not much money, it seems like. It's unbelievable. They turned that $10,000 into 10 cities. New York, Boston, Chicago, you know, it's crazy. Generous master who rewards crazy risk takers who gambled with his money. It's wild. I mean, this master must have known what kinds of risks the servants had to take to make this kind of money. And he seems to reward such reckless behavior, encourage it, it seems. Right? So the system is setting up. Then another servant came, and this is the contrast, what not to do, and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you. Because you are a hard master. You take out what you do not sow, put in, and reap what you do not sow. So this is a servant, in contrast, plays it very safe. You see that, right? This is your, have you heard of people who lived through the Great Depression? They don't even trust banks, right? They put their money under the mattress. That's him. He is so, he says, I am afraid of you. You are a hard master. You are hard to please, easy to offend, it can get off the rails, and I just don't want to risk offending you. And so I kept it in the safest way I know how to keep it safe. You gave me this, and I kept it safe. Here it is. Right? That's his mentality. But is the master really such a hard Master, this, who represents God? Not in this story, right? Not to the first two servants, at least. The, two, the first two servants, they seem to think this master is a, uh, is a softie, to be honest, right? Uh, I mean, if, if master really was such a terrible master, could any servant take risks? where 95%, 99%, you lose it all and offend your master. Could you do that if your master was such a hard master, such a fearful master? You wouldn't. You would play safe. And they get rewarded like crazy. Very generous master. See, these two types of servants represent two very different approaches to life, faith, God, reality, right? One type tries to play safe. 
And in fact, the majority of people of faith are like the last servant, very afraid of offending God. Fear of God is what faith is all about, they seem to think. The most famous servant ever preached in America is titled, Sinners in the Hands of Angry God. That is the most famous sermon. Now, just think about that for a moment. Which servant does that represent? If you really thought of God in this way, do you think you could take risks, plays wild and loose? Or would you be more like the last servant who's saying, you know what, I don't ever want to risk offending God. I don't ever want to risk because God is an angry God. He's a hard master. And so I want to play safe and do everything right. And here it is. Which do you think this represents? And yet that is the most famous sermon. That is how people think. And that is what churches are teaching people to think of God in that way. Isn't that shocking? unexpected isn't that something that makes you kind of go whoa maybe I need to rethink everything about what church is about what life is about what God is about so I, I mean those kinds of teachings it sounds wise I mean, I admit that. It's a very popular line to take. It's a safe line to take for a preacher like me. You know what I'm saying? Right? Sounds wise. But what is the result? Jesus continues. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. Wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? The master is really angry, doesn't it? It sounds like he, he is very offended. Why then didn't you put my money on, in bank, at least 1%, right? So that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. Not just ten, ten cities. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. The fearful servant who tries so hard not to offend the master ends up getting exactly what he was so afraid of. Isn't that ironic? He ends up offending God in the worst way possible. Why do you think that might be? Why is the master so mad? I mean, after all, he got his mina back. I mean, interest isn't that much interest. So why is the master so angry? Think about that. I think the reason why the master is so angry is that it's really insulting to be viewed like this when you are not like that. 
first two servants, they seem to have trust in the master. Because it takes trust to try to increase the master's money like that. They must have viewed God or the master as someone who is generous, someone who rewards you, and not easy to offend. That if you messed up, it's going to be okay. You have this sense that God is like your friend. God is on your side. God is like a loving parent. God loves you. And you have this freedom to explore. You have this freedom to risk. You have this freedom to try to live your life in a way that seems, at times, could be seen as reckless, but okay. Even if you fail, God's there to catch you. That kind of trust, faith, whereas the last servant seems to think of God as easy to offend, angry, ready to blast you at any moment if you just, you know, step off in a wrong way. And I think that's very insulting. Imagine if you were a parent and you're raising kids and your kid is so afraid of you that they just, I mean, like the last servant, it would break your heart, don't you think? I think it breaks God's heart to have this perception. And this servant ends up with nothing. You see, fear-based life leads to empty life with nothing to show for it in the end. Does that make sense? I'm going to read you a quote from a book called Life Lessons. It's written by a doctor who interviewed like 10,000 dying patients. Now that's, that's pretty good source material. Because when you are dying, you get focus about what was really important in life, right? So that's what the book is about. A lot of wisdom in that book. I recommend it, Life Lessons. And here is one quote I want to read you today. If all fears were removed, how different would your life be? Think about it. If nothing stopped you from following your dreams, your life would probably be very different. This is what the dying learn. Dying makes our worst fears come forward to be faced directly. It helps us see the different life that is possible. And in that vision, takes the rest of our fears away. Unfortunately, by the time the fear is gone, most of us are too sick or too old to do those things we would have done differently had we not been afraid. Doesn't that hit you as wisdom? Like when you are dying, the worst has happened. <laughs> So, all fears disappear because it's over. And then, it becomes clear 
how you should have lived differently. So the encouragement here is don't wait <laughs> until you are dying. Imagine now how you would feel differently if you realized you were dying and live that life because the truth is we are all dying. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but none of us are living forever. It's coming. Master is coming back. And there is going to be a reckoning. One life to live right now. So think now of how you should live without fears. Because living with fear leads to empty life in the end. That's the encouragement. So, I mean, in a way, in a circuitous way, I'm coming back to trust God, which you would expect to hear in a church. <laughs> but in an unexpected way, right? I'm preaching to you. Have a more generous view of God. Live by faith. Trust. Breathe a little easier. So that's how, what people of faith should live like if we really had faith. Go for your dreams. God is good. God is patient. God is kind. God is your friend. If we really live by such faith, we'll have multiplying life. Amina becomes 10, becomes 10 cities. That's pretty good. Your life will expand. Sounds good? Let me give you some practical suggestions. First suggestion is think of God or reality as your friend. Don't think of it as your enemy who's always trying to get you, you know? Think of God as a friend. Don't think of God as a harsh master that controls everything in life. People have this assumption that God controls every little bad thing that happens, like, any bad break you experience, we, I hear this all the time. We, we tend to think, God is judging me. This bad thing is happening because God has caused it to happen because of my hidden sin or I'm not doing enough, I'm not believing enough, or something's wrong. You know what I'm saying? Well, this is what Job's friends say in the Bible, and God gets very angry about that. Not how God works. It's like Jesus said, God is divine, we are the branches. We've been talking about that for a while. God lets branches shape the future. God is the roots, but the branches shape the future. They can have fruit or they don't, ha they don't have to have fruit. It's up to the branches. If we didn't believe this, we would have to say God caused the Holocaust. 
Were all these Jewish children that were so bad, God just killed them off? Bible says no evil proceeds from God. That's unbiblical to claim that God has caused the Holocaust. No, that's people did that. Branches did that. So stuff happens in life. Accidents happen, cancers happen, bad things happen to good people. It's just life because God let the earth produce fruit. And it just happens. So given that life happens, think of God as your friend. God is divine, trying to be your friend, encouraging you, cheering you on, and trying to help you get to the best outcome possible given the situation. Do you see what I'm getting at? Think of God as your friend. Because Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. You know, we just looked at a parable that talked about people as servants. But you know, not every aspect of the parable should be taken just literally, right? There are parables that refer to us as coins. We're not coins, (laughs) right? Not literally. We need to look at the dynamic of what's happening. What is the dynamic here? We're talking about a servant-master dynamic versus friendship dynamic. First two servants act as if the master is more like their friend than a terrible master that controls everything. There is a servant-master dynamic that is toxic to friendship. This is the difference between Old Testament and New Testament, Old Covenant and New Covenant. Jesus is shifting servant to friend, right? See, servants... Look at master as if the master controls everything. And they look at the master as like, well, you're responsible for everything in my life. Well, the friends don't do that. That would be toxic in friendship, right? There are other things that are toxic too. Like, for example, when do you usually pray? Most people pray either when you have something to complain about or when you need something from God. Those are the two things. Oh God, why did you let this happen? Oh God, I need a good job. I need a good boyfriend. I need, you know what I'm saying? Those are really the only times we tend to pray. Let's be honest. That's what people do. Now, servants, that's not a problem. Servants talk to their master when they have something to complain about. And when they need something from the master, that's a servant-master thing. But imagine if your friend only calls you only when they need something from you or they have something to complain about. How would you feel about such a friend? Oh, come on. How would you feel? Not a good friend, right? You know, put it on a call screen. You know, don't take the call, phone call. It would be very annoying. So don't do that to God. God is your friend. Don't insult God. Don't offend God like that. Do you see what offends God? I mean, treat God as like a, a person, you know, even. You know, someone to like treat with respect. Don't. You know what I'm saying? See, 
friendship requires a different mentality. We are no longer to see ourselves as servants of God, but friends with God. Don't live as fearful servants, but as friends of God. Second suggestion, take a moment to imagine your life with less fear. Do this with me right now. Just put out a palms, palms up, and just put all your worries and fears and anxieties, things that you're afraid is going to get you, destroy your life, ruin your life, make your life bad. Right? Just put it all on your palms. Now you are in the presence of God. God, who is your friend. Take a deep breath. And turn it down. Turn your palms down. You are letting it all go in the presence of God. You're giving it to God. Let God take those fears from you and help you live with less fear. Amen. Do this. Whenever you're gripped by fear, try. Imagine God being there as your friend and keep turning your fears away so you can live with less fear. Final, finally, I just want to, this is an announcement. Um, I'm starting a chat with Charles upstairs. It's going to be some pizza. Feel free to come up, ask questions. You know, this sermon may have been provocative, whatever. Come up and push back. Any questions are welcome. Don't be afraid. I am not a hard master. You know, (laughs) I'm easy to get along with. So just come up and just ask any question you like. And we'll just have a conversation. You get to meet people. Be fun. Sounds good? All right, so here we go. Let's worship God who is our friend.